Culture has the power to delight, excite, and absorb us. It's a fundamentally human thing. From entertainment and music, to literature and art, culture gives us a sense of belonging and plays a vital role in enriching our lives. I'm Nati Katambala, and this is Superculture, a Selfridges podcast series celebrating the importance of culture to each and every one of us. After a hugely challenging year for the creative industries, we're toasting to new beginnings by meeting remarkable people from a range of disciplines who are inspiring change, joy, and positivity in their artistic fields. We'll hear from them about their early influences and impactful moments that have gone on to shape them and their careers. In this episode, I'm joined by creative powerhouse duo Gareth Pugh and Carson McColl. I'm Gareth Pugh and I'm a fashion designer and creative director. I'm Carson McCall and I'm a writer and creative director. I wanted to just start with the big question. How would you say that you define culture? It's essentially kind of what makes us who we are. It's like, you know, if you want to get in a bus, it's kind of, it's, it's inbred in, into us that you queue. Um, <laughs> I love this idea of... Some oh, of us. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I just love this idea of all of these things that we take for granted and just know intuitively are the things that define who we are. So essentially, I guess culture is something essentially that defines who we are. I see culture as something that is fairly fluid and that belongs to the people rather than belonging to the state or the the, the apparatus of the state. You'll learn this very quickly. <laughs> I tend to see things from like a political perspective and I, and I think that in that regard culture is kind of like the tip of the spear and that when artists and activists get information, they can really secure the establishment and they can create change. And I see culture as a really effective agent of change. You've come from very different paths in Mm. how you've gotten to where you are today. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came together to collaborate as such a strong pair. My first step into kind of the path that I find myself on now started at a young age I always liked to make things I always liked to create things and when I was 14 I applied and was accepted into the National Youth Theatre which is an organisation based still based on the Holloway Road in London that take people from the ages of 14 to 21 it's kind of a theatre school I couldn't act so I made the conscious decision to apply for the costume department I couldn't sew but I'm very good at blagging um, <laughs> so I kind of were, was accepted onto this course and it was kind of this like revelation really to be in amongst all of these like-minded people that really lighted the fire under me and my love affair with London sort of started and the the kind of decision was made quite early on that I really wanted to come to London to study fashion I guess the National Youth Theatre really kind of set me on that path I think for me in with hindsight thinking about that idea of starting in the theatre I always used I, I was also a dancer so I had this kind of experience of behind the scenes in theatre yeah. and I really enjoy that idea of fantasy an audience goes into a space and it's that idea of the suspension of disbelief and this thing exists it's very temporal and I think all of those things feed very much into what I do now with fashion I mean me and Carson met after I kind of left St Martin's and was I'd showed in London for maybe four years 
you know, me and Carson have been together for 14 years now. <laughs> so it's... Uh, Faints it's, in studio. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite... It's quite a, <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, we met in, like, 2007. We started working properly together, really, in 2012. Very early on, you very quickly realised that you, you have the opportunity to tell stories that touch on wider, wider cultural things. Do you know what I mean? Like, a lot mm. of fashion is very, very inward-looking and... I think that actually we both share the idea that it's a vehicle for storytelling and to, yeah. and to reflect people's collective fears and fantasies. And it's not just this like glitzy side show, it actually has a deeper meaning. Yeah. I think that was why it seemed like a particularly satisfying journey to start out on together. And could I hear a little bit more about your journey to where you are today, Carson? <laughs> Let's just say it's non-linear. Um, <laughs> well, the best ones are. Exactly. My parents like, were very, they were very, very encouraging of my like, imagination when I was a kid. And part of that thing was to do with the fact that they knew that it was the thing sustaining me and nourishing me and keeping me going. As I got older and discovered like, you know, pop iconography of like yeah. music videos and, and albums and music, it was really music. I used to lie in bed at night with my headset, like a headset on, listening to music making up music videos in my head for this oh. for each song and then like start the song again and do a new treatment <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was like totally standard and obviously as a music person first and foremost i'm curious to hear what sort of music was inspiring you when well, you were growing up there's the thing is when people say they have eclectic taste in music it's such an eye roll but i really do <laughs> and then basically my dad um my dad loves old old like bluegrass and country and western and he also loves soul and he loves like early r&b and like really it, he he has a i guess that comes from him but then oh, i also have like a side of me that loves the the grandiosity of like madonna and michael jackson of janet jackson of the greats and like and i think that the i think it was the visual storytelling that came with those artists yeah. mixed with the deep meaningfulness of like of of the music of like the 60s 70s i'm assuming that's some of your first like interactions i guess with art and culture in that in that way um gareth do you remember any of your first times you became aware of culture for my 10th birthday my brother had been brought down to Wembley to see Sonnen play like the FA Cup final and my mum likes to keep us both equal so um, <laughs> obviously identifying that I was a little bit different than my brother she brought me down to London to see the Phantom of the Opera um, <laughs> she, she called it so yeah, she called it she knew before I did <laughs> the theatre queen if ever I saw one um, but basically that for me I mean coming to London that was like you know you're talking like 1991 London was a very very different place than it is now. My first experience of London when I was 10 was, I guess, that first realisation that there's a whole other world. It was actually quite apt that that year my mum and dad took me to Disneyland, a world based on fantasy, but it was actually London that I found more fantastical. You've obviously touched on growing up in Sunderland there. Carson, you grew up in Glasgow mainly. And obviously they're geographically far apart. But I wondered if you found any similarities from your experiences growing up in those places and how they might have shaped you in becoming who you are today. 
But I think similarly, like with, you know, like I said, both Glasgow and Sunderland, it's like they're, they're both very post-industrial towns. You know, Sunderland was a huge builder of ships and we had a, a huge amount of factories. And I think that kind of mentality of saving all of your energy until the weekend. Like there's a huge drinking culture in Sunderland and there's also this very kind of self-deprecating quality. You can never give my my mum a compliment. If you say, oh, that's a nice dress, she'll be like, oh, it was half price. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, there's always this double-edged sword, I guess, with that. Do you want to talk about a bit about Glasgow, Castle? Yeah, I mean, when your families, when two in-laws families meet for the first time and there's just there's just so much in common, you, can, you it's because you, you you have come from a similar culture and, and I think that that culture is is defined by everything that Gareth just said, but also there's two parts to it. There's a really, really beautiful part to a positive part. I think that the humour is very similar in Glasgow and in the North East. And I think that that is, is something that I love whenever we go back to either place. There's also like, there's a real heaviness to it as well because the red hot like hatred for Thatcher still, <laughs> because basically both places were completely devastated by that particular Tory government. And I think that it's yet to be resolved. I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who, like this, they're scarred by it. And I think that um, that's informed a lot of our political leanings, but I also think it's informed a lot of, our, our, of the way that we just approach the world in general. And I think that when, when we talk about what, about what means something to us and what we do, it's about reconnecting with those values more than anything. What would you say is a standout cultural moment that inspired your career? One absolute banger is um, absolute face melter Sinead O'Connor on Saturday Night Live where she ripped up the picture of the Pope. I remember being really young and seeing that and thinking like that was, it was really important. I yeah. watch it back quite frequently <laughs> um, and we made a, I made a film with my friend um, Sophie earlier this year um, and it was like uh, it was basically it was after the, mur- the murder of Sarah Everard and it was sort of in response to the what was the police reaction and we basically we recorded Sylvia Plath's Daddy um, which is obviously one of the most excoriating poems ever written but at the end I put in Sinead O'Connor repping up the because she says children children fight and it's, it's so visceral yeah. and um, and it's like when I put that in I was like wow I've been waiting like 34 years to, to drop that into a project because mm. it was so important to me so that was that was one that really sticks with me Nick Knight asked me to choose my favourite film um, to do kind of like a short studio film night and it was a film that I, I guess a lot of people maybe come to it a lot younger in life. It was one of those newspapers that give away free DVDs. And when I was at Halls, we used to kind of raid the old newspapers outside of Woolworths or something. Anyway, uh, Cabaret, um, a lot in my work, there's a juxtaposition of two radically opposing forces, whether that's black or white or masculine, feminine, good yeah. or bad. It's It's that midpoint between those two opposites that I feel is the space we like to investigate. And for me, a film like Cabaret, and Carson mentioned earlier on kind of equating the fashion industry with a glitzy sideshow, Cabaret is that glitzy sideshow, but beneath the level, the surface level of it, is this real awful like um, insidious darkness. The reason why I kind of, I, I guess, uh, chose to um, have that film played at this kind of viewing thing at your studio was 
you know, this idea of history repeating itself, I feel like this, the the subtext that Cabaret kind of touches upon, this kind of rise of the far right and this um, whistling along, singing a happy tune, pretending it doesn't exist, mm. um, which is the worst thing to do, mm. um, is a, an important message to kind of, I guess, remind people or even remind yourself that um, you can't just stand by the wayside and just watch things play out and yeah. unfold. Moving on to a more specific part of culture and the culture that you guys are a part of, queer culture, obviously, which I'm sure you had your own experiences with in the places that you grew up. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hit. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how would you say that you define that culture and its relationship to the other parts of yourself? I mean, I think the big thing for me, it's that idea of surrounding yourself with like-minded people. It's that idea of chosen family. And with regard to what I do and what we do collectively, it's 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 kind of a similar approach in that, you know, you, you, you have to rely on a team or a creative family in order to kind of do what you do. I think it's important because I think, you know, a lot of the people that we know have had a lot of issues and problems with their biological family and I think just that kind of idea of uh, love and togetherness and creating things together and like making mistakes together and having that kind of sense of like togetherness or support I think those those support networks are super important I think I would like to think that that was a really big important aspect of queer culture we've both sat here and spoke about how we have supportive parents and what is so clear to anyone who is part of the queer community is that that's not the standard um that's the first thing the second thing is the idea of like being queer in the first place in my opinion is radical it's like um all the things that we're t- that we've been taught it's about we have to unlearn them especially with regard to um the trans community who obviously we owe everything to them and it's um we've worked a lot recently with an organization called we exist which is basically an arts organization but they also they they do that in um in support of an emergency trans healthcare fund and working with them becoming really close with the team and the artists involved has been one of the most illuminating queer experiences in my life and of my life full stop and I think that's the it goes for both of us mm. but to realise that when the p- pandemic hit that mutual aid was just an immediate thing within the queer community because that's the way it was being built yeah. that's the way we've had to look after each other and when Gareth talks about people being abandoned by families and things it's like it's real visceral stuff we're talking about and it's people very close to us and it's bad we, it's very hard to get your head around how people can do that to their own family but then it's also really hard to get your head around like how protected you can feel by other people who aren't blood relatives but who are family Do you feel like you've seen that community and that culture of support evolve or shift at all in, in the time that you've been a part of it? We've been talking a lot about this idea of othering When I was kind of 16, 17 the, the big thing was queer as folk. It was a huge thing for it to be on primetime TV. And that idea of visibility is so important to countering that idea of othering. If people are just there in people's eyeline, people are scared of things that they find foreign or that they find odd or that they don't understand. And my hope for the future is that 
you know, this idea of segregation and this idea of people feeling like they're on a peripheral becomes a little bit more into the kind of just general consciousness. Basically, what we're talking about is racism and transphobia in the LGBTQ plus community. That's it. Our friend Cartel Brown is an amazing activist and, and he's also house father of a Vogan house and he was in a film we made called Soul of Movement and he was talking about this idea of like consuming the trans community's excellence but then when they're being treated violently it's crickets, there's no yeah. one. And I think that that's something that thought has been expressed in so many different ways that we've heard over the past two or three years from different people and yet it continues and I think that that's why that's the the next step is like is how do we address those things especially looking toward what Gareth is saying in this big project for next year is geared toward that and so tell me a bit about hard and shiny and what led you to kind of found your own creative agency and anything else you can say about the projects that you're going to be working on hard and shiny was my company when we first started the show but then when i started to work with carson carson obviously jokes that (laughs) because obviously carson's sparkling and scintillating and i'm (laughs) obviously not okay i'm I'm hard and apparently he's shiny but it wasn't really (laughs) we could fake crime yeah um, I just quite like the fact that whenever you have to um, submit an invoice, everyone thinks that I sell sex toys. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's open to interpretation. Yeah, but basically, um, we showed for a long time. I mean, I, 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 my first show at London Fashion Week was 2004, and then I showed at Paris Fashion Week for seven years, starting from 2008. We then showed in New York, and then came back to London for a few years. And our last show was actually at Selfridges, which is spring summer 2019. And we decided kind of quite luckily, just pre-pandemic, that we wanted to kind of, I guess, stretch our legs creatively and not really necessarily be trapped so much in this cyclical hoopla game of, you know, season on season on season. It just didn't really, it felt like we had more to say. We always have hidden layers of meaning in regard to the work that we produce, but it's uh, often quite difficult to put them across in such an explicit sense when you're essentially talking about a fashion show yeah you know it's all there and it's it's really important for us that it is there but it's there was there's ways there's other ways of having those conversations from a very young age it's always been something that i wanted to do and then i all of a sudden got a chance to do it i.e being a fashion designer and showing my work at fashion week to take that step away from that was kind of quite felt a little like jumping into the void but then it quickly realized that it's not jumping into this unknown it's just basically changing tack we always used to be asked to do various different projects when we were in that cycle of showing. And it was always a case that if it was the three months in the lead up to Fashion Week, we just had to turn all these things down. Yeah. And really fun things, really fun things that we could do really well and also that we would get a lot of enjoyment from. So that choice to kind of put ourselves out there to be open to suggestion or open to different projects was quite thrilling for us both because you know there's like I, like I was saying earlier it's, there's, there's, there's only so much I feel like we could have achieved with what we were doing and I feel like we're now able to kind of throw ourselves more wholeheartedly into the, the things that we we didn't have the bandwidth to really take those things on We've talked about fashion and we've talked about 
politics and like culture and community and how important all of those parts are to you. And I guess I'm always just curious about what you believe like fashion's role is within the culture and, and how it has the power to shape it or question it or disrupt it. I mean, I'm always of the opinion that if if used in the right way, fashion could really be a, an incredibly important kind of platform for the discussion of prescient ideas. Basically, we did a big project last summer with Nick Knight and we made a film to go alongside it. And the film opened with this very incredible clip of Nina Simone saying basically that an artist's duty is to reflect the times in which they live. I just feel like there is a huge reluctance within the fashion community to look things directly in the eye. We kind of find ourselves in a very particular and quite lucky, fortuitous sort of situation where we don't really have anyone. We don't have a boss. To answer, no one to answer to. We have no one to answer to, but also we're not really trying to please anybody. as long as we're doing things that we're proud of, then that's kind of all that really matters, which is, you know, that might sound quite selfish, but I think that's sometimes the best way to look at something because, you know, if you are trying to please everybody, you're definitely doing something wrong. There's always going to be people who either love it or hate it. And I think that divisiveness is kind of an interesting territory to exist in. I kind of ha- used to have a different view on what fashion represented than I do now. What I've realized is that when we were trying to make big grand statements, unless you know what you're talking about, unless you unless you really spend time understanding or trying to understand the issues, it can be really dangerous mm. and it can be really it can really undermine the actual the larger aim of yeah, any of movement. Course. I love Alexandria Ocasio Cortez so much, but I was looking at the um the hard you know, the statement they made at the Met. She was wearing a gown that said tax the rich. She is part of a system. You see it happen in real time and it's like, it's not the, it just doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't, there's not enough nuance. On the other side of the coin of AOC was Little Nas X. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's like, that's what, it's a very that's, good point. that is, this is the thing of using image making, using fashion, using visual culture to, to secure the establishment. When I was growing up, if there was like a gay pop star like Bottom for Satan in a video, <laughs> I think my life would have been very different. <laughs> I think it may have, you know, like graduated yeah. in my queerness at a much earlier yeah. age. I really liked the term that you used to describe one of your shows as a cultural Trojan horse. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that. So basically, basically someone who's been really, really important to Gareth, well, particularly for Gareth, but for, to both of our lives, is um, Michelle Lamy. And when we've had some really, really intense conversations with her about the point of all the, you know, why we were working so hard, why we were, like, um, devoting so much of our time to what we were doing when we were showing. And she made a really good point uh, once where she was talking about this idea of seduction. You have to seduce people and to be open to your point of view. And I think that goes for... That's not just for fashion, it goes for everything. But I think that it did lead to a new way of thinking about it. And and Gareth often uses that expression of like fashion can be a children a cultural Trojan horse. And that's really about the idea of like some of the shows that we've done, it's introduced a, like a particular kind of queerness to an audience who maybe wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to that, like a ma- much more mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and also 
I mean, if you look back, like, historically, like, fashion has done that. Like, if you think about, like, the David Bowies of the world, or if you think about, do you know what I mean? It's like, it, it can it can introduce things to a mainstream audience and make things very quickly acceptable. Yeah. Again, Lil Nas X. Like, everything comes back to, <laughs> to Lil Nas X. <laughs> no, but seriously though, I can't, it really, it moved me. Call Me By Your Name, the, the first time I saw that video, I was like, this is absolutely like revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But just for it just to happen so quickly and for the world to get on board, because his excellence is undeniable. And it's like, I love, that that to me is the idea of using culture as a Trojan horse. It's like change things overnight. And that's I think it can be done. What's your process like in terms of zeroing in on an idea for a show? We like to be open enough to allow things to be filtered in last minute. We like things to feel quite relevant and quite up to up to date. I was invited, basically Opera Garnier, their season opens usually with a big kind of opera production and um, they invited this really young director to direct this really old 17th century opera called Elie Gabalo and it talks about this child emperor who, you know, this kind of imperious kind of foolish leader who doesn't really know what to do with their power because they're too young and kind of spoiled and the timing it, is key though, the timing it? was key because it was exactly when Trump was being elected <laughs> <laughs> and the parallel Politic. the yeah. parallels were genius yeah. um, but the I mean the opera opened the night before our show in London yeah that but was the two, a fun time but the two but basically the point the point of that story was to say that like the two the show and the opera the show and the opera were connected visually mm-hmm. and it sort of like made perfect sense but again it was like it was about just what's happening around you the time it's like and that was one of the times when we were bold enough to be like we've been offered this but we're going to take it and yeah. we're, no matter what happens I mean you did almost have a nervous breakdown but I think that was worth it and, some, <laughs> and sometimes it's nice when what you want to say and what you want to do visually kind of go together somehow but it's also nice to be able to meld one or the other in order to tell a, a bigger story and I think it's important to have that flexibility or that agility to be able to adapt to those things because otherwise I you know like what's what's the point in doing it unless it has a like a heft behind it Why would you say it's so important to challenge spectators in what you do and and what messages do you want to convey in the work that you do? There's an amazing book that we were pointed towards when we left college. Basically, it was a rationale listing out the reasons to or to not be participant in showing your work on a public platform. And essentially, it boils down to that thing of if you don't have anything to say, don't say it. It kind of kills me when you, people equate Fashion Week with like a trade show. I get it. I understand there's this like, there's this need to tick that business box and it's all about buyers and sellers and, you know, like bottom lines and deadlines and all this kind of stuff. But the crux of it, the reason why people want to go into a store is because they want to buy into this idea of not even necessarily the fantasy version of who they are, 
but it's just this alternate reality of who they could be or flesh um, out or flesh out part of them that that, that is there is exactly yeah. and it's you know it's the reason why a brand like Chanel will spend millions on a couture show where there's like 50 people who'll buy around the world who buy the clothes but it makes you want to buy the lipstick and it's it's kind of fascinating that kind of trickle down effect of that tip of that um, fantastical spear and how it, the industry as a whole works and it does thrive it does begin the genesis point of it is this idea of fantasy this idea of dreaming or being you know transported somewhere else and i do think that there's a um there's a real risk to forget that and then for it just to be about this transactional nature i mean yeah. it's maybe much better i guess to think about it of speaking to someone's heart or someone's head than someone's purse what is next for you both how do you think that you're going to use culture to continue to push boundaries well i think for both of us coming off of you know having quite a long and almost like for want of a better word sheltered existence showing under kind of this fashion week umbrella Coming out of that, I think we both have this deep-rooted desire to do something and do something with all of these um, networks we have been very lucky to build up and all of these kind of skills about this idea of dissemination of message to a wide audience through, I guess, non-verbal communication. It's about building on all of those kind of skills and really trying to diversify our, our offering because we I kind of feel like we don't really want to sit still and we don't want to ever be bored with what we are doing so it's about constantly pushing ourselves to the limits of what we feel is possible we kind of want to continue being kind of quite um What's the word? Audacity. Audacity. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say daring, but yeah, audacity better. Audacity. But, um, I, think, I think we need to remind each other that we have that within ourselves. Me and Carson like to goad each other. You know, like the, the most important things I think we've done for each other have basically said, you can do better. We've made that decision to kind of um, sidestep just before the pandemic really happened. So I kind of feel like... We've obviously feel like we've we're, we're not really at the starting blocks yet, but um, and the dog seen the rabbit. Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> chomping at the bit. <laughs> this podcast is part of Selfridge's ongoing exploration of the most exciting individuals and ideas in the arts. Tune in each week for more thought-provoking discussions and keep an eye on superculture at selfridges.com for mood-boosting events, art films and interviews that continue to explore the importance of culture. This is a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Gareth Pugh and Carson McColl. The producers were Cass Denton, Palama Kaufman, Holly Aquilina with sound design by Ivor Manley. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. Martino.